Sex today. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, what's the Buddhist perspective on rock and roll? Got <laughs> 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 a well, <laughs> kind of an audience in my talk. Got to know your audience. <laughs> Good. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Dear Ajahn Chandigarh, I just wanted to hear the correct Pali pronunciation of your name. That's a trick question? <laughs> Let me read it again. Dear Ajahn Chandigarh, <laughs> I just wanted to hear the correct pronunciation, the Pali pronunciation of your name. Okay, thank you very much. I like these simple questions. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, what is the difference between Zen tradition and your tradition? Peace. <laughs> the long version, short version, medium version. Ah. <laughs> I started in the Zen tradition. And uh, was yeah, it was a wonderful introduction. I had uh, a very good teacher in Katagiri Roshi, who was here in Minneapolis. And when I was in college, he would periodically come down and give a talk in uh, somewhat in English, uh, and I didn't really understand a lot that he was saying, or even half of what he was saying, but he seemed to be happy, a cool guy. So I thought, well, maybe there's something to this. So um, I gradually got more involved with the Zen Center. Yeah, and uh, my senior year, he actually came and taught a class, Carleton College. 
so I thought that was a pretty good deal, you know. You've got your Dhamma teacher coming and you're taking a class and you know, he would come down and teach meditation and you know, not only was I getting credit for it, but I was getting merit. <laughs> so it's a hard combination to beat, you know. If you can get merit and credit at the same time, it's pretty good. Um, so then right after graduation, this opportunity came up for to do a, a um, six-week uh, monastic, monastic style retreat down at their retreat place, Hokioji, and just uh, over the border in Iowa. I showed up with uh, long hair, hmm. drumsticks in my pocket, hmm. um, all the other zennies, you know, took a look at me and said, who is this young guy? How long is he going to last? Fresh out of college. Give him a week, give him ten days, he'll be out of here. <clears throat> but I actually took to it quite well. And, uh, let's see, Zen, the impression that I had of Zen at that time was that it gave a, a wonderfully kind of uh, poetic, big picture look at the mind and how it works. And there was a lot of emphasis on sitting meditation. And I would have been happy to, to stay in that tradition, but uh, there, there were really no places at that time to practice full-time. As I became more and more interested in it and did longer retreats, uh, after a few years I was looking for a place where I could do it full-time. And there was, there was no place really in the, in the U.S. and Japan just didn't seem thriving like it once was. <clears throat> so um, I decided to go to Thailand on the recommendation of some people who had just come back from there. And uh, the, first, the, the first experience I had with the Theravada tradition was doing very long vipassana style, like real traditional Burmese um, rising and falling type of a retreat, three months. And one of the first big differences that I noticed was that they gave meditation instruction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas, you know, at the Katagiri Roshi, I'd say, you know, should we like pay attention to the breath here or here or the whole breath? And he said, just sit. <laughs> you know, when, when this happens, what should I do? Should I just sit? I mean, it's medita- it is meditation instruction, but it's sort of a, a concise <laughs> meditation instruction. <laughs> just sit. Okay, then uh, the, the Burmese-influenced Theravada meditation was like the polar opposite. It was just uh, so much detail of 
how the mind works, uh, the, you know, the interrelationship between mental states, the, uh, the things, the, the gradual development of the mind, all like laid out as this beautiful map. Uh, so, as a contrast, I was very impressed. And having the, that, I think having a bit of Zen background helped, but then, you know, with Zen this, you know, um, very impressive outline of, of how the minds work. Yeah, I was I was quite impressed with that and found it helpful. When I when I finally ended up at Wat Banana Chat, which was Ajahn Chah's monastery for uh, non Thais, where all the teaching was in English. Then I noticed that although the, the monastic training was definitely, um, you know, had its unique characteristics, basically I, my sense was what the actual monastic training wasn't that different, whether it was, say, Ajahn Chah style or Zen style. Still uh, emphasis in, in group practice, um, you know, emphasis in diligence and a lot of a lot of sitting meditation, walking meditation. So, in actual practice, uh, at least monastic practice, wasn't that different. Uh, the tradition, the forest tradition, places a, a lot of emphasis on uh, the Vinaya, which has innumerable details. Seeming, seemingly to date from the time of the Buddha, of how to practice monastic life, how to look after your bowl, robes, interactions with the other monastics, um, just everything that we do in daily life. Uh, you know, lots, of, lots of writings on that and proper ways to, proper ways to behave. And even that was familiar, although the Zen tradition uh, has pretty much lost the Vinaya. Dogen was absolutely meticulous in creating um, sort of like his own Vinaya of the proper way that a Zen monk should behave. Um, Oryoki um, dining being one example, um, or, or many of the other uh, things that uh, do throughout the Zen monk's life, you know, just uh, very, very detailed, refined instructions on how to approach cooking, cleaning, eating. So even that, although it was coming from a very different place, you know, different, uh, different countries, different authors, the basic uh, effect on the training was, was very similar. In some ways, I found the Ajahn Chah style to be even more Zen than Zen, which is interesting because uh, Zen, sort of, uh, uh, the idea is that it's very spontaneous. You know, kind of just tuning into the spontaneity of life and then responding. But all of the, the Zen priests that I had known give talks, they were all like completely prepared talks. Mm. Whereas 
Ah, Ajahn Chah wouldn't allow that. You know, he would just sometimes just pick someone out of the out of the hall. Sangha lined up and said, "Okay, you'll give a talk now." <laughs> and then in Thailand, you have to get up in this high seat, which is like the seat is like this high, so you're kind of towering over everyone, and you have to give a talk. Like, and you know, you have no choice. It is spontaneous, and all you can do is speak from your heart. And so, and I was impressed with that. It's like oh, it's even more Zen than Zen. <laughs> By the time I got to Wapananachat, Ajahn Chah, he was still alive, but he was very sick. And he was bedridden for most of the time uh, when I first arrived, and then later bedridden all the time. But from all of the accounts of other people who had been living with him, you know, which was still very, very fresh, uh, he was, was a very lively character. And... You could easily imagine him as of the, of the playful Zen master. Uh, certainly within the bounds of the Vinaya, he was um, quite playful with people in, you know, sometimes uh, finding, finding non-traditional ways to teach them. Sometimes with kind of a little teasing, um, he very quickly would uh, suss out people and know exactly where their strengths are, their weaknesses, where their defilements are, and he would just kind of hone in and uh, you know, with, with painful accuracy <laughs> on what people needed. <laughs> but uh, he was generally very jovial and, and playful. So uh, it was that combination of, of um, a very, very strict training and a certain, a lot of lightheartedness as well, which is also kind of the classic Zen master way of training. In terms of uh, theory, suttas versus Zen sutras, quite different, I would say there's you know, very, very different. Um, the old Pali Indian style, very, very different than the Chan Chinese, uh, Japanese style. Both in style of, of presentation, but also content. So uh, that's probably, I'd say, the biggest difference. Zen monks have eyebrows. <laughs> in Thailand, we have to shave our eyebrows. That was a big renunciation. <clears throat> so those are a few, a few of uh, the <clears throat> comparisons and contrasts. Is from Becca again? <laughs> no, they didn't dare sign it. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, I've been thinking a lot 
<laughs> had a bit of had a bit of time lately. <laughs> a little, little time on your hands. I've been thinking a lot about the idea of safety, which I understood intellectually is just an illusion that we never really that we are never really physically safe. I could slip on a patch of ice and die, or mud. <laughs> I've been reflecting on that recently. Or emotionally safe, for example, the, the people we love can die, uh, stop loving us, hurt us. But especially here, where we have come together to support each other, to create a, as safe of an environment as possible for each other, we ought to feel safer. Yet, I worry that even if I sneeze too loud or forget to be mindful as, as I am screaming, no, as I am Well, something that I'm being disruptive and angering people. This is I. <laughs> I have realized in meditation how I feel most of the time. When I start a new job, make a close friend, get attached. How could I not be attached to paying my rent or having people to support me? How do I let go of my fear when I see, which I see is so much worse than losing a job, a friend, both of which I have experienced and survived. Despite this knowledge, I still feel anxious so much of the time, and it's exhausting. Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. We can't force ourselves to feel safe and secure. Even if we are in a safe environment, we carry a lot, years and years and years of um, maybe not being in safe environments with us. So it's not going to just happen instantly that, oh, we feel safe and relaxed and secure. You know, it, it does take a bit of time to kind of actually build up trust. <clears throat> but in the larger picture, how can we have a sense of trust and relaxation and um, 
not not feel worry and insecurity in a samsaric condition which is inher- inherently insecure and threatening. So really, even though it's worth trying to create environments which are safe for each other, trying to make that effort, trying to be, trying to be trustworthy ourselves, uh, so that other people feel safe, um, try to choose friends and companions who are trustworthy, um, so that we're not, not setting ourselves up for being hurt. <clears throat> And yet, still in the larger picture, as you mentioned in the question, you know, you can die any time, um, never know what's going to happen, uh, things can pop up, even people who are trustworthy can change, something comes up, changes in their life, and they make a decision, and then suddenly, you know, they say, see ya. So... <clears throat> So that's why we have refuges, because there is no place in the world, the world of conditions, the world around us, which is really safe, right? If, if, if we're trying to find a place or, or a situation or a person or a relationship or any place that, that is truly safe, and then we're going to uh, trust that and base our happiness on that, I think we'll end up dying first or just being disappointed again and again. So when the Buddha talked about a refuge of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, I mean, a refuge is a, a place of safety. So I could say, you know, we're all refugees. And, you know, what happened when, when there's time of danger or difficulty, people flee, you know, with, with a sense of, okay, I've got to save myself somehow, or save my family, save the people I care about, and they flee, and they end up as refugees. And I think people who have enough experience of life will look for a, a safe refuge. You know, there is there is a wise running away, right? I mean, if you, if you look at the, the Buddha as an example, you know, he ran away from his palace. He ran away from that whole lifestyle, which he knew in the long run, you know, wasn't going to work for him. <clears throat> so then... Uh, What does it mean to have a safe refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha? Because it's like uh, then looking outside of the whole realm of causes and conditions and people and uh, places and situations for something which is actually reliable. Something which, you know, if something's going to be really reliable, then it, it can't just arise and pass away. It's got to be constant. Not just now, but all the time in the future. So when we talk about the, the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha being refuges, yeah, that's, that in itself 
is good to reflect on. You know, what's the meaning? Why would the Buddha be a safe refuge? What does that mean? The person, the historical person, um, the life stories, the teachings, the what is it that really uh, is a safe refuge? Is the Buddha's awakening? the potential that we all have to realize the same awakening as the Buddha. And, you know, it was quite clear that every being has the potential, the exact same potential. Not that we'll all become Buddhas, because that's sort of like a special subclass of realized being. But fully awakened arhats, you know, the way the the way these terms are talked about in the suttas, the enlightenment of an arhat and the enlightenment of the Buddha are exactly the same. There's no difference. The liberation of mind is identical. But the Buddha has all of these other qualities which have been developed over eons of practice. Whereas the arhan may or may not have some of those qualities. So now that would be a refuge, a safe place, uh, which, which is a way to go beyond fear, once and for all. Yesterday I was talking about the power of developing loving-kindness, the metta, when it reaches a state or level of being unbounded, just not differentiating between our perceptions of people I like, people I don't like, then we're no longer splitting the world up. And that sense of, okay, no matter what happens, I'm still going to have loving-kindness. Now that's a very good way to overcome fear, worry. Fear of what other people think, fear of people leaving us, fear of death. Whatever happens, okay, we're just going to still have loving kindness. But even that is... um, That's, that's an attainment which still can wear off, whereas stages of realization, they don't deteriorate. Once the mind has realized you know, any one of these four states of enlightenment, it doesn't wear off. And so, you know, that would be a real refuge, a safe place. So again, with the Dhamma, then... The teachings of the Buddha, the teachings that we hear from teachers, the teachings in the suttas, the teachers... What is the real safe refuge of the Dhamma? Really, Dhamma means nature, or the teachings which are in accordance with the laws of nature. So, in the time of the Buddha, all the different teachers had their Dhamma, 
even now, if we go to India, sometimes the uh, Indian people say, Oh, Sadhu, what is the Dhamma that you teach? Which Dhamma do you follow? Um, because you would have, you know, Mahavira's Dhamma, you would have so-and-so's Dhamma, you'd have uh, uh, Siddhartha Gautama's Dhamma. So we talk about the Buddha Dhamma, which is the teaching of the Buddha. But if a Dhamma is really the Dhamma, then it is in perfect accord with the laws of nature. And then, and then that becomes a real refuge, a place of safety, because it's totally in sync with the way things are. An understanding, a way of life, a way of being, that is totally in sync with the way things are. And that, that's a place of safety, because the way things are isn't really going to change. You know, the basic laws, the basic, the basic essence of Dhamma. And the Sangha, when uh, you see the Sangha as a refuge or a place of safety, what does that mean? Conventionally, we see people who wear robes and shaved head and sometimes shaved eyebrows, they are called the Sangha. Or a community of practitioners called the Sangha. But you know, these types of people are prone to human frailties. So they wouldn't be considered an ultimate refuge. But there are people who have such a deep understanding of the Dhamma, such a deep understanding of the Buddha's awakening, personal experience, that they do actually become a safe refuge. So in terms of getting over fear and finding a safe place, it comes right down to it, that's our best bet. Dear Rajan, I suddenly realized, great. <laughs> I suddenly realized that the pain in my knees and back is so much more sweeter than the suffering in my mind. <laughs> it's kind of a bittersweet realization. <laughs> when I sit and my mind has calmed down and I am more I am more than willing to embrace every screaming sinew. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> and just knowing this, my pain turns into a sweet sensation. Thank you. No question. <laughs> just Wonderful exclamation of joyous pain. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, please tell us a story about Ajahn Chah and his attainments. <laughs> so like, 
like a bedtime story. Next question. <laughs> if one comes up, I'll think about it. <clears throat> Ajahn, the YouTube video of you and the two goats is very endearing. <laughs> <laughs> Some, someone been playing with your iPhone in your tent? <laughs> and is a lesson about attachment. Have you been able to reunite with them? <laughs> I'll give you the hyperlink after the retreat and you can watch. <clears throat> Um, first year that I was in New Zealand, I found two abandoned baby goats about a week old. They're about the size of little kittens, uh, brothers and sister, and um, there was no other choice really. The herd of wild goats had run off; <clears throat> they were gone, leaving these two kind of crying little babies. So I brought them back, raised them, um, bottle-fed them initially five times a day. <clears throat> bathed them in the sink, chanted to them regularly. <laughs> uh, they had about as good upbringing, I think, as possible for a goat. <laughs> you know, just complete attention from the Ajahn. It's like chanting to them. <clears throat> and uh, but I had, I wasn't yet the abbot at the monastery. I was, I was, uh, I was the first one to live there. But I didn't really have any uh, say in whatever. So these, uh, the goats and I became very close, and uh, they were happy. I was happy. But then the committee said, "No, you have to get rid of the goats." So. Uh, so we called the New Zealand version of the Humane Society, and and uh, they said yes, they would find a home for these goats, and uh, they'd come pick them up, and then they called back and said, by the way, do you mind if we come with a camera crew? Because I said, well, why? Yeah. I said, well, we have a television show called Animal House, and. <clears throat> This is such a good story. Buddhist monk raises <laughs> baby goats. We thought we would want to put it on our 
Animal House TV show. So they came and filmed us and did an interview with all three of us. <laughs> uh, and then uh, they went to the home of uh, some people who live north of Auckland. And a few months later, I went to visit them. And, you know, they seemed to have a, a good setup there. And then uh, about a year later, I visited them again. would keep in touch with uh, the people who were um, raising my adopted kids. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and, but then, uh, a couple of years ago, I emailed, oh, so, you know, how are they doing? And they didn't write back. And, uh, you know, follow through, because I was traveling up that way, and, and said, can I stop in and have a look and, you know, see how they're doing? And I said, yes. And I got there, and, she, and they said, um, well... The male was getting a bit feisty, so we put him down. And uh, so I wasn't, I didn't think that was a great decision um, because they could have given him back to me. For one thing, I would have taken care of him. Uh, they were supposed to be, it's like giving your kids up for adoption. The adoptive parent says, oh, they're a bit naughty, so we killed him. <laughs> 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 yeah, but you're supposed to look after them. <laughs> yeah. And then the the two were just absolutely inseparable. And you know, from from the very beginning, one one was white and the other one was dark brown, and they would they would always sleep like this, and they would look like a yin yang sign, <laughs> yin yang symbol. You know, they would always sleep with one with each other's head on, the, on each other's back. They were absolutely inseparable. And when the brother was then um, put down, then uh, the sister just uh, went into a spell of depression and never really recovered, and then eventually put her down too. Mm -hmm. So, Welcome to life. <laughs> <laughs> Not always a happy ending, is there? <laughs> Do we have a new goat, though? La last year. Last year I was on a retreat, but then um, our caretaker at that time, in a similar situation, heard this kind of crying and uh, saw that it was a baby goat. Again, the herd had been chased away. Um, you know, he, he waited for a long time to see if the mother was going to come, but as it was really getting dark, he decided to go and get it. And it was this one was slightly older. It was able to walk. The ones, you know, they can start walking after uh, five days or so, I think. And uh, and so um, they took it uh, with some help from my neighbors, uh, raised it, and then after. Uh, my retreat was finished, then we brought it back down to the monastery, and I had been the um, main uh, parental caregiver for, for Lucky, uh, luckiest goat in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. It's a bit pampered sometimes. 
So we, we have a goat, and uh, Lucky is uh, Lucky's still around, and I'm not going to give him away, because I'm the abbot now, <laughs> and the committee can't make me give him away. <laughs> nothing, nothing like a little worldly power. <laughs> okay, here we are. Here's back to the rock and roll question. Dirajan, what do you do about the songs that get stuck in my head? Sometimes just when I think things are going well, a song starts with full volume. Well, whatever you do, don't think of the stairway to heaven. <laughs> no, don't think of, or, um, I mean, but definitely don't, don't start singing in your head, I can't get no satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Definitely don't. <laughs> that's the real. That's the real test. Tomorrow, everyone would be like, just like, would be like quadraphonic, <laughs> rolling stones in people's heads. I remember the first retreat that I was talking about that I did in Thailand. Uh, yeah, a lot of old music was coming up. I used to be a musician, so I was very music-oriented. And an interesting thing that I noticed after a while is that the lyrics that would pop up were often uh, little Dhamma teachings mm -hmm. in their own way. You know, just little snippets, you know, little stanzas that would be a good little Dhamma teaching. Um, I remember writing them down at the time, things like, you know, Neil Young, it's only castles burning in the sky or something, things like that. I can't remember them all, but at the time, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a major problem, or maybe, well, maybe it is for you, depends on how much volume is going on in your mind. But, uh, whatever we pay attention to, whatever we place our attention on, will become stronger. So if, if a song pops up, and we're drawn into it, and we start to get sucked into it, uh, enjoying it even, then it's going to continue, right? It, it will, it'll, it will continue if we give it energy. If we pull our energy away from it and just don't pay attention to it, it will cease on its own. You know, it may pop up again, but then it will cease on its own. So really, it comes down to that much. You know, if we're interested in something that arises in meditation, it will stick around. Ajahn, on the nights of the full moon, do you and your monks practice in a different way to honor the occasion? We howl. <laughs> <laughs> um, that 
that's when the chanting gets really bad. <laughs> Typically, um, on, you know, especially in Thailand, on the nights of the full, new, and quarter moons, that was called Wan Pra, or translated as Monk Day, you know, or kind of a venerable day. And the local villagers would come to the monastery and take the eight precepts uh, for full 24 hours. And there'd be Dhamma teachings, uh, both in the morning and the evening, and uh, meditation throughout the day. Then uh, it was Ajahn Chah's style that uh, everyone would sit meditation throughout the whole night, starting with evening chanting, uh, and then followed by a Dhamma talk, and after that, you meditate through the whole night. <clears throat> so this was quite a tough practice. Um, you know, even if you really like to meditate, <laughs> you know, by the halfway through the night, you're feeling, well, I'm starting to lose my clarity. <laughs> we would get a midnight drink, you know, if we wanted to have a cup of tea or, or sometimes coffee, you know, so we're getting a bit foggy about 11.30 or so, kind of um, midnight cup of tea would uh, get the synapses firing again for a little bit. But, you know, it often took quite a bit of persistence and dedication to, to make it through, like between... 2 a.m. and 3 a.m., 3 a.m. and 4 a.m., those are real difficult hours uh, where just so easy to become overcome by, by drowsiness. But you can do walking meditation as well. It doesn't have to be just sitting meditation. So you could, uh, you could just, just walk, <clears throat> try to bring up energy that way. So, yeah, those were special practices that, that we did. And, um, at the time of sitting meditation all night long, this, it's usually not conducive to your best meditation. But the long-term effects of it are, are quite good. I mean, you, you really have to, to learn how to bring up energy and clarity over and over and over again uh, to combat the, the sleepiness. And then the practice of the next morning following that, you know, you, once dawn comes, you can't just go and crash because then you have to go out an alms round through the village and then you have to have, have the meal and maybe chores after that and then you can go have a rest. But after, you, after all of us have been up all night, then... Um, it's like an invitation for all of our irritation and <laughs> anger to arise. <laughs> so, things that would not normally bother us, you know, the day after being up all night long in these one prat sittings, then, uh, uh, you know, it could just be really irritating. So we'd have to, have to learn that, okay, don't give people feedback on the morning after one prat. It's just not the time that we're in the right space to give it, and they're definitely not in the right space to receive it. So uh, it was a, 
you know, it was quite a full-on practice through the, the whole the whole 24 hours. And uh, doing that, you know, once every seven days, you know, really builds up. Dear Rajan, what is the most important practice besides meditation in Buddhism? Can we say it is loving-kindness? Well, loving-kindness is, you know, can be a meditation as well. Um, most important practice in Buddhism, besides meditation, I would say, is just letting go, releasing of attachment, um, you know, which... Uh, is not necessarily a meditation in and of itself, but can be practiced anytime, anywhere. If the meditation is going well, then hopefully that will um, conduce to deeper and deeper levels of being able to let go. Please get... Please give instruction on simple meditation. <laughs> simple meditation that worked for you and possibly will work for everyone without effort. <laughs> Good question. And you forgot, we'll have instantaneous results. <laughs> uh, right. Simple meditation that works for you possibly will work for everyone without effort. <laughs> You're dreaming, mate. <laughs> yeah. There is no liberation without some effort. And, um, and really, there is no one way or meditation that's going to work for everyone. Um, people are different, people have different inclinations, um, different um, combinations of conditioned characteristics that we call personalities. So different things will work for different people. And even for the same person at different times in life, maybe different types of meditation will work better or worse. So you can't really say that there's one simple way which is going to work for everyone. <clears throat> Although there are some traditions that will continue to say, our way is the only way. Everyone else is wrong. But in my experience, um, it's just not that. There, it's just not that simple or black and white. And, and uh, Ajahn Chah, for example, he didn't, he didn't teach a meditation technique. He taught a whole way of life. And it didn't really matter so much to him what type of meditation people were doing, but how they approached it was very important. The attitude with which they approached it was very important. The results they got from it was very important. And I feel like I'm connecting and sustaining concentration on the object, but no piti or sukha is arising. 
Bum deal. False advertising. <laughs> Did you save your receipt? <laughs> Although there's a general feeling of peace, it's not very refined. How do I take it deeper? Or is it possible that I'm over-concentrating on the breath, which is prohibiting joy to arise? Well, um, partly it depends on what your expectations are. If you expect piti and sukha to be like um, waves of orgasmic bliss, you know, as you're sitting here and you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> finally concentration. <sighs> you know, then you may be disappointed that it's not <laughs> so great, right? But. Um, there are more subtle forms, uh, just relaxing, just learning how to relax. Uh, you know, it's the, the, pleasant compared to being stressed out or anxious. Just letting go of, of stress to some degree is pleasant by comparison. Um, letting go of anxiety is pleasant. Um, sustaining of attention is going to give rise to a more, you know, a more subtle feeling of, of just being at ease and at peace. Now it is, it's also possible that maybe um, could be trying too hard with the concentration, like if uh, there's too much holding energy with the concentration, like really you're being able to sustain it, but, but holding it in a way which would um, cause a bit of tension, then that may be the thing which is actually stopping the arising of a sense of ease and, you know, relaxation and happiness. So try just um, you know, relaxing, relaxing with it in a way which doesn't break the concentration, doesn't make the mind start spacing out, but uh, you know, that would be more conducive than for a real arising of happiness. Also, just be aware of expecting too much. Anytime we go into meditation with expectations of what it should be like, what we should be experiencing, what we hope to experience, what we want to experience, happiness, joy, uh, then those hopes, desires uh, can actually be the thing which stops it from happening. Right? So it, even though there is sort of a basic way that the mind unfolds and generally unfolds in the direction of in, increase in happiness and joy, still the process, um, one, you know, maybe bit of a zigzag before we get to the joy and happiness, maybe there's quite a few obstacles we have to work through. 
um, some a lot of old karma that that may arise um, that we just have to be patient to work through. So it's good just to go into every meditation, not not even hoping for joy or happiness or, or insight or concentration or the repetition of any past experiences. You know, just. These things may happen, but then maybe not. Maybe it will never happen. And so that's probably a good attitude to go into meditation with. Maybe I'll never experience happiness ever in meditation. <laughs> I'll do it anyways. I'll do it anyway. I'm just going to see what happens. And, you know, I'll be concentrated. That's probably a better attitude. Or an attitude which um, you know, is just content with whatever happens. Not like you're trying to trick yourself. You know, saying, I'm not interested in happiness arising. <laughs> really, really, I'm, I'm not looking for attainments of rapture. No, really, I don't, doesn't, don't care at all. But, you know, the minds, you can't really trick the mind, so you have to, you have to just, uh, like, sincerely just be content. Oh, with whatever happens. Okay, I mean, some days there's not going to be much happiness. Um, there can there can be obstacles, or or even the, the concentration might just feel a bit bland. But notice, even even within that blandness, you know, which compared to the concept of rapture, might be a bit boring. But still, within um, a sort of bland concentration, compared to excruciating mental pain, it's pleasurable, isn't it? Even within a boring state, boring mental state, so-called boring mental state, there will definitely be happiness and joy there. And if we if we look for it, then that will help to amplify it. And even if a state of concentration seems it's like not as exciting or it actually seems boring compared to what we had hoped for, then take a real look at the idea of boring. What is boring? Because nothing is intrinsically boring. You know, a lot of people would find sitting here hour after hour, pretty boring. But other people don't find it boring at all. So boring is just a subtle aversion to what we're experiencing. You know? Not fully content. So if you, often it's just like meditation just needs a little tweak. You know, so if uh, if you're not experiencing much happiness, then just say, "Okay, can I be, can I be just completely content with this, whatever it is? Completely content. I'm not looking for anything more." And then see what happens. Dearest Ajahn, I rescued a dragonfly from the mud yesterday. Good for you. Very happy when it got dry enough to fly away. 
there is happiness arising. Later, I reflected on the happiness of helping others. Good practice. Later, during my sit, I wondered if the dragon fly learned from its mistake. <laughs> well, maybe now we're starting to get into a little proliferation. Uh, good grief, Charlie Brown. Good grief. So, do you think dragonfly learned from its mistake? Or is it stuck in the mud somewhere else? <laughs> now that's... Now that's Zen. (laughs) (laughs) Grasshopper. (laughs) Is dragonfly learned? Or dragonfly stuck in mud? Tell me answer, it would be time for you to leave. <laughs> dearest, oh, okay, this is better. Dearest, dearest Ajahn. <laughs> so, of all the dearest Ajahns, no, never mind, really dearest. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, question What did the Buddha say to the hot? <laughs> It's just another Buddhist joke. Someone's got too much time on their hands. Question. What did the Buddha say to the hot dog vendor? Yeah, I've heard this. Answer. Make me one with everything. Okay. Okay. Heard that before. Yeah, that one's gone viral on the internet a long time ago. Okay, dear Ajahn, you mentioned space in guided meditation. Please elaborate on space and its relationship to meditation, how to realize infinite space. (laughs) Well, infinite space is one of the immaterial attainments. Uh, which are very exalted, refined states of meditation. So if you're really dedicated to uh, mastering the, uh, the immaterial attainment of infinity of space, you might have to stay here a little longer. <laughs> However, Generally using um, the perception of spaciousness can, in certain circumstances, help just to get perspective on, on all the stuff that's coming up in our mind. Let's say, for example, uh, our mind's just becoming too cluttered with thinking, um, we can't really get a perspective on it, we're just getting caught up in it, then one thing you can do is is to try to um, visualize, in a sense, or perceive space within and behind everything. Because really, there's a certain reality to that, too. We're all kind of existing within uh, spaciousness, infinite space, and everything arises and passes away within that, comes together. 
and disperses within this infinite space. And then focusing on the spacious element of this reality rather than the concrete things that are rising and passing away can help to get a, a, a broader perspective. So if we focus a bit more on the, on the space, the space between our thoughts, the space between people, the space behind everything that we see, then uh, we can see, well, whatever it is, our mental state, our thoughts, uh, the people, the situation, it's just all kind of rising and passing away within this wider spaciousness. And with that perspective, it can be easier not to take it all so seriously. Um, the attainment of infinite space is, is based on the deep levels of absorption, concentration, and then based on on the, that unity or absorption of mind, you can you can take the object infinity of space, and with a mind that's that powerful and well trained, uh, psyche like can rest in the infinity of space. Is it recommended to discuss with Dhamma friends and teachers the Dhamma and things that are troubling the mind? Is it ever considered wise to vent? <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Take it out on me. To unload your frustrations verbally and get it off your chest. <laughs> A few frustrations arising in meditation. Uh, you have to be very careful about time and place. Uh, the first question, uh, discussing what's happening in your meditation or, or troubling things uh, in your mind. Yeah, I think that's what good friends are for, especially Dhamma friends. And to be able to discuss openly uh, in a trusting way uh, things that are happening in our, in our meditation practice, whether they are, you know, positive, so-called positive developments or difficult obstacles that are arising, it's really good to have good friends that you can talk about this with. Um, that helps a lot, especially with um, things that seem to be problems or obstacles. Often talking, verbalizing that will, will bring some clarity to it and also sometimes you know, solve the problem in many ways. Um, Venting, uh, getting getting your frustrations off your chest verbally. Again, you have to be very careful, time and place, um, because if we do that, then we amplify our mental states out into the world in a big way, mm -hmm. and uh, you know relationships are are fragile. Relationships with other people and friends are are fragile and built on trust, and if we periodically vent on them, then they're not going to trust us so much. There's going to, we're going to be a bit guarded. You never know when we're going to explode. 
so uh, so one ha- you have to be pretty careful. Yeah. You know, saying to one one person this afternoon, you know, uh, if you're in the mood like you really want to tell someone what they need to hear, <laughs> everything that's wrong with them, they really need to hear this, and I'm really the person to tell them. <laughs> that's probably the time just to kind of grit your teeth and say, no, don't say anything. <laughs> don't say anything. Just wait. Uh, because that's often precisely the wrong time to to give someone feedback. So, you know, you can't give you can't give one answer that's true in all situations. Uh, things are dependent on, on time and place and uh, so much as just finding the right time and the right way of saying things. <clears throat> Do you think that Earth is doomed. <laughs> I did earlier this afternoon. <laughs> when I saw that big fiery ball of light in the sky. <clears throat> or is there hope? How can we how can we go on hope? Or how can we let go of our hope? Do you think the earth is doomed? No, I think the earth will be fine. Um, human, human species might be doomed. <laughs> A lot of other species might be doomed. Uh, but the earth will be fine. It will recover. This is just like a momentary hiccup in the history of the earth. What do you do when everything becomes one-pointed and the mind becomes very interested in the mind? Can we take of the mind itself as an object of mindfulness, if mindfulness is very strong, or do we just stick to the breath? Do we ever leave the breath? Okay, as concentration is um, becoming more continuous, able to stay with the meditation object, then it's important to stick with it for a long, long time. Things can start to happen which uh, will be tempting to take the attention off. We start to feel happiness or joy, or not. But if you just if you do start to feel happiness and joy, you may be tempted to start to pay attention to the happiness and joy. And, uh, and that's, it's actually better just to stay in the breath. Um, various lights, nimittas, brightness can start to arise. Again, whether they're helpful or unhelpful, just stay with the breath. Uh, the general awareness is becoming more continuous, so it feels like, well, I don't really need the breath anymore, I can just do objectless meditation. That may be true a little bit, but just stay with the breath, as long as the breath is, is there. Now, there comes a point where the breath becomes so subtle that it's no longer perceivable. 
either it does seem to stop or it becomes so subtle that we can't even perceive it at the nostrils. So at that time, then uh, you can either just stay with objectless awareness. By that time, the continuity of concentration should be good enough that you can actually stay with objectless awareness. Or uh, a nimitta, a helpful nimitta of, say, uh, a consistent brightness, for example, may have already become present in the visual field of meditation. And then, uh, at that point, when that's very stable, then you can take that as a meditation object. But either of these things, the nimitta or the objectless meditation, requires even more mindfulness. They're even more subtle. So, you don't want to rush into trying to pay attention to those things. Because then very easily the continuity of the meditation will be broken and it starts to fall apart. And it's tempting. It's tempting always to say, oh, here I'm getting somewhere. Let's pay attention to something else. Or let's, oh, look at that, look at that. Interesting. So you have to, you have to remind yourself, never mind, never mind. You, know, you may be aware of it on the periphery, but never mind, just mainly, as long as you can, stay with the breath. Dear Ajahn, in today's fragmented world, that what vision is helpful that could help put an end to the Middle East conflict. <laughs> Is this a question that's arising directly from your meditation? think if each one of us does our own little bit to create peace in our minds, in our lives, then the ripples will go out, uh, the whole world is interconnected. That's one very realistic and tangible way to bring peace into the world. Right? And uh, the power of that might be underestimated. Mm-hmm. And once you develop your mind and concentration, you can you can visualize the leaders of Israel and Palestine and Syria and and uh, Libya and think, may they be free from conflict. <laughs> I mean, they're dealing with some pretty raw emotions in places like that. Um, I'm only half joking. If you if you want to use um, items from the news as as a way of developing uh, compassion, then that can be a good practice. Because you know? the news is always filled with painful stuff, bad stuff. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what that's what makes it news usually. And 
so it's easy to find things where find situations where people are suffering, and uh, that's one thing you can do. You can kind of bring that bring that up and you know, empathize with the suffering of protesters in Syria or um, the seemingly endless conflict between Israel and Palestine or um, just innocent people dying in war zones. Um, you know, war, there's just no real winners, really. Even the soldiers who win, they lose too. So, you know, just visualizing or, or developing a kind of empathy for, for people like that, you know, can be a, a way to open our own hearts and um, create a sense of connectedness. Well, kind of running out of time, so leave these last two. If I think of a good Ajahn Chah story about his attainments, I can't tell you everything, mm-hmm. but if I think an appropriate one to to uh, to tell you, I will. But that's probably enough for tonight. And we can talk about the other things later. John came back, right? I don't. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/slash/donate.